Welcome to Straight from the Author, a podcast that gives you a front row seat as leading authors discuss their books at a Warren Public Library. I only had I had a really tight window, six months to get this book turned around because we wanted it to come out in time for her 75th birthday. Being a newspaper reporter, I was like, oh, six months, my God, you could write anything. Yeah, right. It, it was tougher than I thought to find enough, enough um, interviews to fill the book because it's, it's a big book and there's a lot of interviews and they wanted stuff from, you know, the earliest I could find up until the present. Now, you probably all know that she had a aneurysm in 2015, as I was saying, and so she hasn't given any inter interviews since then. She's able to talk, but it, it's kind of tough. But so, um, you know, she was born in, uh, she was born in Alberta, but she really grew up in Saskatoon and Saskatchewan and still has that very distinctive accent. And I don't know, I, uh, this, this came up in so many in, of the interviews I use in the book. Her first mystical connection with a song, with a record, was with Rhapsody on a Theme of Paganini. She still says, as of her most recent interviews, that it's the most beautiful melody she ever heard. And uh, she still thinks about it a lot. That's what's so amazing to me, that in interviews from the 60s, up to the present, certain things, certain threads would pop up again and again. And for everybody, their childhood's important. But this really made an impression on her, along with her 50s favorites, you know, Chuck Berry and that kind of thing. Now, I don't have to explain to you guys, looking around, what beatniks and coffee houses were, <laughs> right? I was gonna, for a younger audience, put a slide up of Maynard G. Krebs or something. <laughs> I was looking in the Detroit News Digital Archive going way back to 1960 when they really thought beatniks were a plague and they were going to corrupt youth, which was great. It was hilarious. For someone like Joni, she had been into Chuck Berry and all the great rock and rollers. She felt that rock and roll was becoming too decadent and, you know, too teenage or something. It wasn't interesting to her anymore. So she liked the Kingston Trio. She thought folk music was a little more her style. She learned how to play the ukulele first, not the guitar. Her mother thought the guitar was a hillbilly instrument. Her mother was kind of upper middle class, posh, striving, at least according to Joni. We don't have Myrtle to tell her side of the story. I have a friend who actually, his Rolling Stone interview is in here. Um, he did an uh, interview in 1970, a Canadian writer, Larry LeBlanc, and Larry knew Joni's mother, Myrtle, quite well. And he said she was just as strong-willed as Joni, just as tart. He says women from Saskatchewan are very tart-toned. And um, people are often surprised at that with Joni. I'll get into that a little bit later. But um, Joni learned a guitar, and she started singing in coffee houses for cigarette money, she said. I should, say, I should tell you too, she had had polio at the age of nine. That's pretty well known. Um, she had the polio in the same epidemic that Neil Young got polio that swept Ontario, 1952. And um, that really affected her, I believe. She talks about it a lot in the book, in many, many interviews. She talks about being alone in the hospital because it was too far from her parents. And 
I think she was alone as an only child as, as well, a lot. And that really kind of fed her creativity a bit. She was forced to entertain herself. She was forced to make things up, write, draw. And that's what happened to her in the hospital. She was singing a lot in the hospital. That's where she really got into that. The, guy, the boy in the next bed told her to be quiet, stop singing, and she sang louder. There was a, a show called Sing Out in Canada. It was sort of their local hootenanny. This was when she was still Joni Anderson. They always remarked on this show, oh, Joni Mitchell, Joni Anderson, rather. She writes her own music. This is different. And now comes Chuck. She moved down to Toronto. She was pregnant. She had been in art college, and her boyfriend in art college, although she says friend, whatever, um, had gotten her pregnant, and um, he took off for California. He, they sort of had, I think she wanted to make it clear that they didn't have a really tight relationship, um, that he could do that. But at any rate, she had the baby. It was traumatic for her in the hospital. She says in several interviews in, in my book that the nurses at the hospital made her feel just terrible, that she had done a disgraceful thing. And the best thing she could do was give the child up for adoption. She did not do that quite yet. She gave the baby up, a girl, for foster care, into foster care. Then she met Chuck in the spring of that year. Kelly was born in February, her baby. Her baby was put in foster care. Joni was pretty much starving because she didn't have enough money for a union card in Toronto. You needed one even for the coffee houses, for the better coffee houses. So she was playing the low level coffee houses and not making much money. Chuck comes from Detroit. He's tall, he's handsome, he's Mr. Wonderful, and uh, he proposes to her after knowing her for six weeks in Toronto. She doesn't say yes, but she comes down to Detroit to see him on the train. She moved into uh, his apartment on Ferry Street, Ferry at Cass. She called it the Tenement Castle in her song later on. And she wrote some of her most iconic songs. You know, some of the songs that you hear, you think it was written in the prairies of Canada or in California. She wrote it here in not only Detroit, but in a gritty part of Detroit, sitting in a coffee house. It was the Huddle House. She was in one of the, the Huddle House that was closest to Cass. And she said right before, in one of the interviews in my book, she said, a waitress at the Huddle House um, told her, it was 1967, and she better not come in there anymore. It was getting a little tense, it was a little dangerous. Because um, Joni moved in in 65, and she was there through 67 and part of 68. So she wrote Circle Game here, she wrote Both Sides Now, some of her best known early songs. The only really notable song she'd written before she got here was Urge for Going. Everything else was written here, in a coffee house usually. That line about the keys not fitting the door, Chuck told me their last fight, he, she threw a candelabra at him. They love to, they love to um, collect junky antiques, go to junk shops, go to cheap antique stores, and also pick up stuff off the street. And they would haul it all the way up to the fifth floor of the Verona. They, Chuck had half the fifth floor, and he had had it since 1962. And by 65, 66, they were still only paying $70 a month. 
And well, it wasn't only at the time, that was probably a lot of money, especially for folk singers. But, um, and, and by then, you know, Chuck hadn't, had started out as a teacher. He was teaching Head Start, that kind of thing in Detroit. But then he gave it up and became a full-time folk singer. The, the whole Great Society stuff was going on in the early 60s and Head Start was a big new thing and Model Cities was, that pumped a lot of money into Detroit in the early 60s. And we had a Democratic mayor, Democratic president, so the money was really coming in for urban renewal of, of whatever kind. I used two Detroit news stories as well, they let me use them in the book interviews they did with Chuck and Joni in 1966 as the hip young couple, the hip young bohemian couple. You know, they weren't known. She had, nobody knew who Joni Mitchell was. Nobody knew who Chuck Mitchell was, but they were just considered this kind of good-looking, unique young couple. So they profiled them several times, actually. Joni often talks in my book about um, the jazz musician she met at the chess meet. This was a really vital part of her growth as a musician. And she said, a couple interviews, that the jazz musicians would sometimes check their acts out and she would, and Chuck would, you know, check out their stuff later on. They got to know each other. So Chuck told me one time that, well, Joni admits this in a couple interviews that as much as she trashes Chuck from time to time, she does give him credit for getting her, her music annotated, you know, in sheet music form. That was a vital thing for her to do, that and setting up her own publishing company, which Chuck got her to do. Chuck helped her. Because in order for her songs to be covered by other artists, and that's what really took off for her, her career, she had to have those business things in place. She had to have her publishing company, and she had to have, you know, it available on sheet music. So the guy who did the sheet music, she describes him as a jazz musician that she met at the chess mate, that she chucked it. Chuck was the one who arranged it though, and he told me he was a Motown guy. So this intrigued me, and I've asked Chuck, I got as much out of him as I could, you know, description, a total physical description, because I knew the, most of the Funk Brothers pretty well, and I wanted to know, it had to be one of those guys. And from the description, I think it was Beans Bowles that Chuck gave me because Beans was a reed man. He was six foot, at least, thin, and family man, he had a family. Um, that's all the information that Chuck was giving me, which was a pretty good one. Is that there were other guys who wrote out music at Motown, but they didn't have quite that physical presence. Uh, the apartment at the Verona, the Mitchells, was like a crossroads. Everybody who played Detroit would stay there. It was certainly big enough, but they didn't make a lot of money when they'd come in from out of town to play gigs. So Gordon Lightfoot, um, Buffy St. Marie, and this really helped play into Joni's success as well because they were, she already knew Buffy from Toronto and then of course Gordon and those guys, but they solidified their friendships and she would play her songs for friends and then they would go onward to other places and they would say, hey, I'm going to play this song right now, and if you like it, it's by someone named Joni Mitchell. You should check her out. So this gave her a name, kind of. And so when she wanted to play a Philadelphia club, someone had already been there talking about her the, the week before. Patrick Skye would stay at the apartment, too, and he would play the chess mate or whatever. And Patrick actually told her, 
when she played Urge for Going, that song sucks. And Dave Van Ronk, he said, why don't you be a model, you're so cute, you know. I don't really like that song, but can I, play, can I take that song and can I play it? And he took Urge for Going and he played it. And he also did Circle Game. So that, that's what she had to put up from, from these guys. And one of the interviews I include in the book, she says, I didn't know. I thought he was putting me on when he said he liked the song and wanted to play it. I thought maybe this was a joke at my expense. So you can look at her later on. She got a little cranky in her interviews, a little, you know, she thought Bob Dylan got maybe a little bit too much credit and she got too little. When you see what went on early on, you can kind of understand that. Now, one person that she always credits for helping her big time is Tom Rush. Tom Rush did Urge for Going. He didn't intend to put it on an album. He wanted to, he sang it for Judy Collins, and he wanted Judy to do it. Judy didn't like that particular song, but of course she liked some of Joni's later stuff. But Tom's, his, he decided since he had already learned it, he had to learn the song to play it for Judy, he liked it, so he, he included it on this album. I really like it. Now I should say she kind of finished that song in, in Detroit, so even though she started it in Toronto. Now before I get done with talking about Chuck, I should say too, um, both sides now, Chuck, um, she credits him with helping with the publishing company and all that stuff, but she, he also had a reading list for her. Now this was, this kind of pissed her off and it kind of helped her though. She admits that it was a good thing. He, she went to art college, he went to, he was an English lit major, and he kind of made her feel like she hadn't read enough of the most important books that she should be reading. One of them was Henderson the Rain King. He made out a reading list for her, and Henderson the Rain King was on it. The Hobbit and all the Tolkien novels were on it, and, and a bunch of other things. She read it, she read this stuff and she absorbed it, and really the imagery and um, both Sides Now comes from Henderson the Rain King, looking at clouds from both sides. If you go back and read that book, it's, it's all right there. Buffy was huge for her career as well, and here she would come to town, she played the chess mate a lot, and Joni played her songs for her, so she had a tape of Joni singing her songs, her original songs, and her agent knew a junior agent, Elliot Roberts, and Buffy finally got Elliot to agree to fly out to see Joni perform, and boom, he took her on right away. As raggedy as she was at that point, when he saw how many songs she had, and the quality of the songs, he went crazy. Now, do you know Buffy's from Saskatchewan as well? Now, of course, the first time I was aware of jo Joni Mitchell was through Judy Collins, of course. Judy was perfect for her, for Joni's music. And to the point where, you know, was there room for Joni Mitchell to even come out and sing her own songs on the national stage when you had someone with a beautiful voice like this? And this was a huge hit, this album. Huge. So what, what room was there for Joni? Joni can be, she could be hard on some of her female um, performer friends. <laughs> I could, Joan Baez. <laughs> Um, but Judy, I think there were some misunderstandings with her and Judy, and Judy was, was kind of perplexed as to why Joni was mad at her from time to time. 
I think there was a little bit of resentment about the early success that Judy came, came out, boom, with that big hit on her song. But at the same time, she, she owed a lot to Judy and, and that rendition. But there was mixed feelings. This was the straw that broke the camel's back with Chuck and Joni. Leonard Cohen, they had an affair. And uh, she, by most accounts, including, including her own, um, kind of wrote a case of you referring to him. She, she was like up and down on Leonard. She said he was a boudoir poet, which was not a compliment. But she also said, I'm only a groupie for Picasso and Leonard. But you know, a case of you. When I was in college at Michigan State, you knew somebody was having a breakup and a bad time. If you heard a case of you drifting out into the hallway. <laughs> You know, one thing I didn't also credit to Detroit that I, I should, I need to, well, kind of obliquely credited to Detroit. Joni's known for her open tunings on the guitar, and that really, if, um, it changed her whole way of songwriting. And she learned the, those open tunings from Eric Anderson in Detroit. He was appearing at the Chessmate or one of the local clubs, and in the apartment, he was staying with them. He showed her a lot of these. Now, James Taylor was another one she was very involved with, and Blue really came out of their relationship and the breakup and his heroin addiction and the fact that he couldn't, he couldn't commit to her and he broke up with her, and it was, it was shattering. Um, it was really the Leonard, um, Leonard Cohen relationship, brief as it was, that broke her and Chuck up. And Chuck just had enough, and she was, off on her own touring around the country, and she would come back to Detroit periodically, though, and get a guy friend to help her go up to the Verona apartment and bring some of the treasures down. And she took them out with her. So Chuck was really mad about that. He finally changed the locks. That's what she refers to in the song, I had a king, my key no longer fits the door. So he really did do that. Um, but when he told me about her throwing the um, candelabra at him, another treasure, but she missed. She didn't hit Chuck, but that kind of was the last fight. And she was also involved briefly with, with David Crosby. He, of course, produced her first album. That um, didn't last long, and it kind of soured her on having anyone tell her what to do in the studio ever again. But she, they're, they're good friends, although I think he, he compared her to Mussolini at one point. And she's got pretty firm ideas of what she wants. <laughs> yeah, and then there's Graham Nash. No, I don't, I don't know. I've interviewed Graham. He's an adorable person. And in his memoir, he says nothing but wonderful things about Joni. And yet, she still found something in this memoir to be mad about, which was crazy. They have different views, as most many couples do, of why they broke up. And she insists that he wanted a traditional wife. And she says that several times in some of the interviews I used. And um, Graham said in his memoir, who, who, why would I ever tell Joni Mitchell to be a stay-at-home wife? Why would I ever do that? That would be crazy. Similarly, Chuck told me that um, she ha she's often blamed Chuck for the fact that she had to give up her daughter eventually for um, adoption. She claimed that her first husband would, wouldn't let her bring the baby to Detroit. 
Chuck said, why would I ever tell Joni Mitchell what to do? So he said, I was smart. I told her from the get-go it was her decision. Whatever she wanted to do, I would be okay with. Keep the baby, give it up for adoption. But that, that was probably not what she wanted to hear at that point. At any rate, um, years later, she's had, of course, a reunion with Chuck, with, with um, her daughter. Yeah, Dylan, okay. One of the fun things about putting this book together was, of course, some of the crazy things Joni says. And um, she called Dylan a plagiarist, said that he adopted hillbilly voices as his persona. And she felt kind of put upon because she was more original an artist, and yet he was getting more glory, acclaim, money, whatever. Um, you know, that, uh, I, I don't know if you guys read the Daily Mail. They did a story on my book, which was great, but also kind of freaky because they took out the most lurid parts of the book, the, the craziest quotes from Joni, including her, the stuff where she trashes Dylan. She also says great things about Dylan, like positively 4th Street. That changed her whole approach to songwriting, the fact that he could write a song that starts out, you've got a lot of nerve to say you are my friend. She said, that, that's like you're talking to somebody. It's so direct and un uncomplicated. So the fact that you could write a song like that, she thought was great. And so, okay, here's one of the bad quotes. Oh, she, it was to the guy, a guy with the LA Times, Matt Deal, that's who she told Bob Dylan was a plagiarist. So, in an interview she did after that with Jean Gomeshi of CBC, she said, I hate doing interviews with stupid people and this guy's a moron, <laughs> referring to Matt. Okay, next. She's, uh, she's still talking to Jean. She says, I like a lot of Bob Dylan's songs. Musically, he's not very gifted. He's borrowed his voice from a lot of old hillbillies. He's not a great guitar player. He's invented a character to, to deliver his songs. Sometimes I wish I could have that character because she could do things with that character. It's a mask of sorts. Her next interview was to Elio Iannacci with Maclean's, the Canadian magazine. And this was, she's referring back to the previous interview with Jean Gomeshi. She says, you know, I did an interview with a CBC commentator. I exercised the house after this guy left. I smudged it and I opened all the windows. Now it comes out that he's been fired from CBC. People kept saying, what a great interviewer. I didn't think so. You can find that interview, it's on video on YouTube. It's really long. Um, it's in like three parts or something. The other, um, the other funny writer story. I, of course, I was uh, I was able to call on a lot of writer friends from Cream and from later on that I know who talked to Joni. So it was easy for me to kind of quickly get some of these things together and use them for the book. One of my colleagues at Cream, Dave DiMartino, had done an interview with Joni for Mojo. So. I used it, we, we came to an agreement, it was cool. Um, and in that interview, at one point, she's talking about, I gotta go back here, she's talking about how in the MTV era and after that, she felt as an older veteran artist, she was like manure in a field. Like poop, manure in a field. He has this in the, in the article, you know. 
And, but then I was editing the next interview with her that I included, which is a radio interview, the text of it. And in, in it, she starts talking about the same subject. And she said, let's get this right. Uh, I felt like man of war in a pasture. Not, and then she said, this guy wrote a story for Mojo, and he said manure in a field, in a pasture. No, it's man of war, like the racehorse put out to pasture, get it? <clears throat> so I called up Dave, my friend, I said, Dave, did you know you got this wrong? You, you had manure and she was trying to say man of war in her Saskatchewan accent and she, she trashed you for that in her next story. She was on you about it and he, he was laughing, he thought it was funny. He had already had a kind of a funny exchange with her. He had seen a concert at the Hollywood Bowl and Dave's really tall. His knees, she'd been right in front of him in the next seat, and his knees were kind of on her long hair. So when she tried to get up, it kind of pulled her hair, and she turned around and gave him a dirty look, you know. So when he asked her later if she remembered that, she said, yeah, I do. Um, one of her early shows, I don't know if you ever heard that Prince was a big Joni fan, and she, she remembered seeing him in the audience. She talks about it that she, he still looked like a little prince, like a 15-year-old prince, the same face. She remembers him being in one of the front rows at one of her Minneapolis concerts, which is kind of cool. Um, I remember seeing him sitting in the front row when he was very young. He must have been about 15. He was in an aisle seat, and he had unusually big eyes. He watched the whole show with his collar up, looking side to side. You couldn't miss him. He was a little princeling. Prince used to write me fan mail with all of the U's and hearts that way that he writes. He, um, he, Prince, his favorite album of all time of Joni's was The Hissing of Summer Lawns. And he was on that from the beginning. Now one of the reasons, you know, we didn't get to see Joni a lot over the years after a certain point was it was hard for her to to tour and because all of her songs with those open tunings, each one would be different for each song. And it was so complicated to have a roadie either retune the guitar, bring new guitars out. But then this really, this Roland VG8 really revolutionized things for her. And this was about when she was getting into jazz heavily, being backed up by jazz musicians like Jaco Pastorius. So her sound just took a giant leap forward. So she was doing more live shows with this the Roland VGA, it, it's a virtual guitar. I wanted to jump back, um, you all know her song Little Green was about Kelly, the daughter she gave up. And um, that was, you know, it's been a mixed bag, her reunion with her. And I talked to Chuck about it and he said off the record that he's not surprised being, um, he thought that Joni was not being realistic about the fact that she, with her career at the time, he doesn't think she could have kept the baby. As women today, that that seems that doesn't seem right. It seems like she could have if she wanted to, and if, you know, I can understand Joni feeling conflicted and feeling that maybe she should have done this. And apparently, her daughter has feelings of abandonment that have come into the relationship, and they've. Uh, but one thing that's been totally un unconflicted is she loves her her grandson and granddaughter tremendously and that's been a great thing for Joni. 
Straight from the Author has been brought to you by MyWarn. To hear more podcasts like this, visit MyWarn.org. Again, that's MIWarn.org.